Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 41, into the 7th century. So last time, we ended with the ordination of Pope Damien, which was around the same time of the death of Jacob Bardius and the excommunication of Paul of Antioch. As I alluded to last week, the first issue on Damien's desk was what to do about the seat of Antioch and the leadership gap in Syria. So, quickly, Bob Damien left Egypt and traveled to Syria to consecrate a patriarch there. To his credit, he learned from Bob's mistakes and actually tried really hard to get the Syrian monks feedback before just ordaining his own man. Unfortunately, two factors worked against him. First, the Syrian monk's favorite choice, a man named Peter, refused to be ordained on the grounds that as long as Paul was alive, ordaining another patriarch would be uncanonical. Now, this wasn't really out of loyalty to Paul. Rather, it was more out of a desire to not be challenged by the Ghassanids on Paul's faction and the validity of that ordination. As the primary source for this event, John of Ephesus puts it in the mouth of some of the candidates, quote, I, for my part, cannot consent to be set in his place, for possibly the end would be that I should myself be divorced. Second, the Chalcedonian Patriarch of Antioch was not going to let the Miaphysites in Syria rally under one bishop. So, he constantly harassed Damien. With that pressure, plus the lack of cooperation from the leading candidates, Bob Damien ended up consecrating a monk named Severus, who was not really anyone first choice. And even then, literally in the middle of the ceremony, the Chalcedonian Patriarch of Antioch sent a group of soldiers to arrest Damien and his entourage and Damien barely escaped and had to go through the sewers. Not everybody in his entourage was as lucky so, and several monks were arrested and died by torture. The whole thing was just ugly, and it further pushed Damien to try and figure out what to do about Syria. Now, it was obvious to everybody that the Ghassanids have to get involved and take the lead on whatever plans that Damien had in mind to fill the Patriarch of Antioch. As such, Damien left Syria and traveled to Constantinople to meet there with Almanzar, 
who was currently in the capital for a very special occasion. You see, he was there to receive a crown, an actual crown from the emperor, probably to fulfill a promise from the heyday of the Persian Wars. Now, the Ghassanids are officially a Miaphysite Christian kingdom on the doorsteps of the empire which was not really a welcome development from the perspective of the Byzantines. The Ghassanids were not barners, they were a geopolitical chip in their struggle with Persia. A pawn in a game of chess, and pawns are not supposed to get crowns. So almost immediately after the ceremony, the imperial government set to work on completely dismantling the confederation of the Ghassanids. But we will get there in a bit. For now, Almonzer and Bob Damien met in the capital to decide what to do with the Miaphysites in Syria. The Pacifics here are hazy, but it seems like Almonzer convinced or pressured Bob Damien to accept Bola again, and the whole thing was framed as a reconciliation between two factions of the Miaphysites. In essence, throwing the newly ordained Severus under the bus. Unfortunately, that wasn't really the end of it. As soon as Pope Damien left the capital and returned to Alexandria, this agreement was abandoned and Bol was back to being excommunicated. I'm leaning heavily here that Pope Damien was pressured by Almonzor, as he was outside of his home base in Egypt and had very little negotiating leverage. Also, to be fair, John of Ephesus makes it sound like Almonzor was a great diplomat and Damien just reneged on his promises when he went back to Egypt. Whatever the case, once Almonzor got his crown and everyone went back to his home, nothing was changed. The Patriarch of Antioch was still a mess and Bo was still in limbo, but not for long after. Within a year, Bo died, which you would think will solve the problem but it actually made it worse. Bob Damien's position was that there was already a patriarch, the monk Severus, which he ordained. But the Syrian monks wanted it better, who had refused the office because Bol was still alive. They never really accepted Severus, and to them he was just, quote, a silly man, who they take no part in choosing. Thus, without Bob Damien's involvement, Beter was consecrated as the Patriarch of Antioch. Now, to his great credit, initially, Bob Damien decided to drop the whole matter and accept Beter's consecration as nothing have happened with the monks of years. But despite that, tensions quickly developed between the two men, where both of them saw themselves as the true leader of the Miaphysite movement. It will be another five years until they formally excommunicate each other. So while these tensions are working themselves out, I want to go back to Almonzer and his rising star, as it will be important in the big picture on how the Arabs conquered Egypt. As any listener would appreciate by this point, the Arab-Byzantine relationship went back a long time and had its ups and downs. It does seem, however, by just in the second reign, 
a significant shift had taken place, as it was at this point that the Ghassanids' control of Arabia became tight, and a Miaphysite church was pulling the various tribes together. As such, there was a serious plot to assassinate Al-Munzer under Justin II, but it was discovered and failed. Then, as we said last week, Justin went mad and Tiberius hatched things over, and Al-Munzer tightened his control even further. Immediately after the crowning in Constantinople, the Ghassanids inflicted a serious defeat on Al-Ahmed, basically making them the masters of Arabia. This victory, along with the deaths of a very influential Persian Shah, the Persian version of Justinian, renewed war on the Persian frontier again, with the Ghassanids and the Byzantine taking the initiative this time. Leading the Byzantines was a combatant general named Maurice, who Tiberius would eventually elevate as Caesar to succeed him. For now, though, he was a Chalcedonian general leading Byzantine forces alongside with the fiercely independent Miaphysite Almunzer, who had equal, if not better, troops. Hopefully, you can see where this is going. King Almunzer and General Maurice would immediately not get along. The story, and it varies depending on whatever the source is Miaphysite or Chalcedonian, goes like this. After an initial success, the combined Roman-Arab army decided to move on the Persian capital, an ambitious but doable goal. However, in a way, was the Euphrates, and there was only one suitable bridge for the army to cross. According to the Chalcedonian sources, Almonzer betrayed the Romans and passed the plan over to the Persians, who burned the bridge and foiled the campaign. Which is not that far-fetched, as the imperial government tried to assassinate him a few years earlier, and the Ghassanids thrived on the Persian-Roman conflict. If Persia loses its capital, then it upsets the whole balance in the region, and they are likely to be the next target for the Byzantines. But, according to the Miaphysite sources, the Persians were not stupid, and the plan was very obvious with no treachery involved. This was about getting rid of the Ghassanids because they have become too powerful and could overrun Syria and Palestine if they wanted to. Not to mention, Al-Munzer has publicly advocated for the Miaphysites and served as the political backer of them inside the empire. It would be quite reasonable for Maurice to imagine a scenario where Al-Munzer would intervene forcefully to protect the Miaphysites from persecution. I will leave it up to you to which side to believe, but the two sides essentially agree on what happens next. Basically, after the failure of the campaign, Maurice publicly accused Almunzer of treason, and he traveled to Constantinople in person and persuaded Tiberius to act. As such, Almunzer was invited to the dedication of a church in Syria where he was kidnapped and transported to the capital, and from there he was exiled to Sicily to die in obscurity. As you would expect, his sons and tribesmen, in revenge, 
raided Palestine and Syria, and the partnership between the Christian Arab tribes and the Byzantines ended. Maurice will ascend the throne shortly, and one of the first things he will do is completely dismantle the tribal confederation, and not really by a war of annihilation or assimilation. No, rather it was by shrewd maneuvering that divided the confederation. First, he invited Almanzar, most capable son, to the capital on his ascension for bee stocks. And once the son was there, he was arrested and exiled. This was followed up by splitting of the confederation into 15 different tribes, via the usual playing and the tribal differences and well-placed financial subsidies. In essence, the manpower of the Arabian tribes was preserved, but the Byzantine just took out the leadership, which was the family of Al-Haris. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, this was the ultimate shooting yourself in the foot move. Maurice just alienated the Arabs and created a power vacuum in a place where its inhabitants were good soldiers who were very familiar with Byzantine territory and military tactics. Maurice himself would be okay, as he was an energetic soldier emperor. But whoever is going to follow him will be in big trouble. And not only it was a disastrous move from the militaristic side, it was even worse from a religious perspective, as it undermined Christianity in the Arabian Peninsula. The Ghassanids were good Christians, who sponsored missionary activities in the peninsula and fought the Persians for decades partially for religious reasons. Not to mention, no matter how much the Persian armies were better than the Byzantines, the Ghassanids limited their reach. As masters of the desert, there was no way a Persian army can have a supply line extending from their territory to Jerusalem or Alexandria with the Ghassanids present and disturbing that supply line. Within a couple of decades, the Persian would reach all the way to Egypt and get comfortable there for a whole decade with absolutely no problem keeping the communication and the supply routes open. I can probably come up with a hundred reasons why a bunch of Arabs with no economic base to speak of or a regular ascending army completely chewed up the Byzantine army in a few decades from now. But the complete mishandling of the Ghassanids' rising kingdom would be easily in the top three. They were perfectly situated to be completely assimilated into the empire, with just a bit more strategic thinking and a little bit religious discord. Or at the very least, cultivated as partners and left to serve as a buffer against Persia and the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, similar to the Nubian Kingdom south of Egypt, which was, for the most part, left alone. Alas, they were dismantled and large portions of the tribesmen turned from being friends into enemies, not to mention the religious and political vacuum that was created led directly to the rise of Islam. But in any case, we would have more to say on that in a few episodes. 
The dismantling of the Ghassanids brings us nicely to the conclusion to the tense five-year truce between Peter and Damien, and into the formal break between the Miaphysite churches in Antioch and Alexandria. In those five years, Bob Damien have started to systematically publish theological works against the Julianists, the Thracyists, and various other fringe Miaphysite groups. It was one of these things that a Miaphysite patriarch is supposed to do. One of those treaties, named a refutation of the Thracyist chapters, was then sent to Peter in Antioch, so, quote, he might examine it and correct in it what was necessary. Again, standard diplomatic procedures among Miaphysite churches. An expected response was not really to correct it, but rather send the letter back encouraging the effort. But rather than do that, Beta responded with some technical reservations about the letter and its quote, strange expressions that he found out of key with the church fathers. Now, it's really hard to figure out here what was Peter trying to do, as the letter was really a rehashing of old arguments, and the Triceists were old news anyway. And when Bob Damien reacted harshly, as you would expect, Peter tried to walk his reservations back, but Damien continued to be harsh. So, Peter doubled down. Eventually, both sides will excommunicate each other. Peter was excommunicated on the grounds of being a Triceist sympathizer, and Bob Damien on the grounds of being a Sabellian, a very early Christian heresy that had some fringe ideas about the Trinity. But neither of them was really guilty of the crime. Unfortunately, this was just a continuation of the disintegration of church and state institutions that begun in the reign of Justinian was a sprinkling of the power dynamic of who's going to lead the Miaphysite movement, both Seudosius and Jacob Baradius. Other than this issue, Damien did pretty well in Egypt, and the Coptic church hold on the monasteries in Upper Egypt became very tight. In Alexandria and some of the bigger cities in the Delta, the dynamic was different so. The Chalcedonian church now have had a foothold for a while, and a native element to that church was now present in this area. But even with this apparent coexistence between the two groups in the Delta slash Alexandria, there was deep disaffection with the imperial government and gapping cultural differences. This becomes quite clear from a local revolt in the Delta that occurred in the same year that Tiberius died and Maurice ascended the throne. 582 AD. Now, a revolt is probably not the best word here. It was more of an organized gang activity, or a very local civil war between Egyptian aristocrats, as this quote-unquote revolt had absolutely no ideological basis. The whole thing was started by the imprisonment of several important men in the Delta, we do not really know the reasons or anything about these men, but their name. But as a result, 
one aristocratic family, specifically three brothers, who were on good terms with the prefect of Alexandria, decided to take their cause and forcefully demand their release. This meant cutting off the grain from the rest of Egypt to Alexandria, and even small-time piracy that reached all the way to Cyprus. Was Alexandria cut off from grain? Famine started to take hold, and riots broke out. The mob was going after the prefect, who as I said earlier, was on good terms with those three brothers. Now, it does seem here that there was some local struggle between the Chalcedonian patriarch and the prefect of Alexandria, as Maurice reacted to the whole thing by removing the prefect and telling the patriarch to go negotiate with the rebels. Negotiations that broke down as the rebels demanded that the prefect comes back and the release of the prisoners. The sources here do not tell us whether the three brothers were Miaphysite or Chalcedonians, but given that the Chalcedonian patriarch was doing the negotiation and not Damien, it seemed that they were Chalcedonians, or at least their religious differences were not part of the rebellion. Not to mention, the three brothers were definitely landed aristocrats, based on the resources they managed to procure in their little rebellion and aristocrats from the Delta tended to be Chalcedonians. Whatever the case, Maurice, who was having serious problems with Persia at the moment and could not spare resources for Egypt, returned the old prefect to Alexandria to serve as a figurehead, was a general to be the de facto prefect. The new arriving general took the prisoners and marched in the camp of the rebels. Then, standing on the other side of the river, the prisoners begged the rebels to abandon camp and leave, either because the prisoners were afraid for their life, or they were promised release if the rebels disperse. As a result, some of the rebels did disperse, which was followed by a formal battle where the three brothers were captured alive and paraded through the streets of Alexandria. Surprisingly so, they were not executed at the spot, through the influence of the old figurehead prefect. Nonetheless, within a year, Maurice sent a new prefect with orders to execute the men, confiscate the property of anyone who was associated with this rebellion, and burn the city and the delta that was the center of the rebellion to the ground. Yeah. That's how Maurice ruled pretty much throughout his reign. The important point for us here is that the governing of Egypt was deteriorating fast, which not only showed in the religious struggles, but among the civil institution of the state as well. This is really the period where land ownership would be consolidated to a few families and the native population would completely disconnect with those who govern. A reckoning was coming. First, a civil war among the Byzantines. Then, the Persians will come. And finally, to conclude that chapter of the history of the Copts, the Arabs. Next week, 
we will go through the first of these events, the civil war that laid the foundation from the transition between Byzantine and Arabs. Thank you for listening. Farewell, and until next week.